Welcome to Research Radio, Episode 7. Research Radio is a monthly series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This month, we speak with Professor Gillian Schofield from the University of East Anglia in the UK about providing a secure base for children and youth in foster care. This week's episode is hosted by Ivan Brady. My name is Dr. Gillian Schofield and I'm Professor of Child and Family Social Work and Head of the School of Social Work and Co-Director of the Centre for Research on Children and Families at the University of East Anglia, which is a university in Norwich in the east of England. Could you please briefly describe the research that you're going to be talking about today during the interview? The set I'm going to be talking about is a, a series of projects that we've been undertaking since 1997 into foster care and thinking about the range of experiences of children, um, of adults who've grown up in foster care, foster carers themselves, social workers and other professionals that support them. And with a particular focus on growing up in foster care, the experience of, of long-term foster care placements where the hope is that the child will experience the foster family as a, a real family. And then I'm going to move on to focus on um, some of the work that's come out of that in relation to parenting, uh, caregiving, um, and say a little bit about um, the secure base model, which is relevant for uh, fostering and, and also for adoption. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why you chose to study this topic. Was there anything in your previous experience or anything that really promoted that passion or interest that you have in this topic? Yes, I, I became interested in this topic because I used to work as a social worker in, in the courts in England and I was what was known as a children's guardian. And it was my job to recommend to the court on the basis of the evidence the appropriate outcomes for children who couldn't return home to their birth families. And for the children for whom re- adoption was the recommendation, um, I would see the case again when the adoption order application came through and I understood what that route meant. For situations where myself and the local authority had recommended long-term foster care, um, it wasn't clear to me. I didn't know what happened to those children afterwards. So I was very curious to find out. So that was my, my starting point. And then what I decided to do was to um, interview adults who grew up in foster care. So I interviewed 40 adults who grew up in foster care and from that study I heard stories that I had never heard before. I was talking to people in their 30s where their children were basically grandchildren to their foster carers Um, and these were stories about foster families that I really hadn't come across Mm. in the literature. So those two things, curiosity about what happened to children for whom long-term foster care was the plan and a a sense that there might be stories out there, aspects of foster family life that were really not known. Do you want to go ahead and tell us about the the specific research? Yes. um, What what I'll do is I'll talk a little bit about probably one of the most recent projects, which I think has summed up a lot of the research that I've Mm -hmm. done, and that was published in the uh, Children News Services Review Journal Mm -hmm. um, under the title Part of the Family, Care Planning for Children in Family Foster Care. So it was really about the experience of children in placements where uh, foster care was the the plan, but it was also a situation in which I wanted to understand the impact for children of growing up, being expected to attend meetings, to have social workers come visit them, and that experience really of being in a family, but also being subject really to um, a bureaucracy, if you like, Mm -hmm. a, a system. And I wanted to understand whether children were able to feel truly at home. So this was a study of 230 children, Um, And these children had formerly 
uh, received uh, long-term foster care plans. Now, in many parts of the world, including in um, in uh, Canada and, and America, uh, long-term foster care has rather fallen out of favour um, in favour of adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in England, we have both. We do have adoption from care, and we also have long-term foster care. So these are children then that we were studying for whom adoption would have been thought about because that is always an option for children, but long-term foster care was the chosen plan. Mm -hmm. And we looked at all the files on those children and we interviewed uh, a subsample of the children. We spoke to the foster carers, um, we spoke to the social workers, and within that study we were able to think again about um, what was particularly valuable in long-term foster care and really what some of the risks might be. So from this project, what we, um, what we concluded was that um, in many cases, the children were, were doing well in their, in their foster families. Their families were very committed to them. And the children themselves were able to talk about that sense of belonging that's very important. One of the things that, that did come out of the study, which was interesting to us, was that, that for foster carers, there can be a tension between what is the current expectation really that foster carers are professionals who have training and support and are skilled people and the expectation in the situation that they are fully parents to the children, that, um, that they are providing a family in which the child can grow up while also being professional carers. So one of the findings we had was that what seemed to be working well was where carers who had a primary motivation to be foster carers for the local authority but could also take up the role of parents or foster carers whose primary motivation was to be parents but were also willing to accept training and support, that both of those worked well. So where where foster carers were able to play both roles and integrate them together, the children were doing well. Where, however, foster carers were very committed to being foster carers, perhaps, but never really undertook that sense of family commitment and parenting that the children needed, or indeed where carers were parents but refused to get involved with the local authority and resisted the sort of help and support they might need, both of those, the children were more at risk. So I think there's a really important job that we need to do when we're training foster carers and thinking about long-term foster care in helping foster carers to understand that it's okay to be both, that you can be both a professional, skilled foster carer but also a loving mother or father to a foster child. So that was, that was one important element. And I think the other element that we felt really was that there were some real difficulties in how placements were managed by social workers that what seemed really important was that families were supported in the idea that they were a permanent option for the child, Mm. that there was an expectation that this foster family was special, really, was a bit different from short-term foster families, and therefore the foster carers need to be treated uh, more as parents in terms of the decisions they could make for the child and so on. So that was really, that was really important. And, and these themes were reflected both in the children's interviews, in the foster carers' interviews, and in the social work interviews. This difficulty sometimes in managing that tension between, we have, for example, in the UK, we have six monthly reviews for all children in care. So there was a real challenge as to how you manage that review in a way that isn't intrusive, 
that allows the child to feel that this is still very much their, their family and it's a family that's valued by the professional systems around them. Of course, in a lot of these situations, one of the important things that also had to be managed was that most of these children were having contact with their birth family. So part of the challenge really for the families and for the children and for the, the professionals around them was how to make sure that contact was helpful and constructive for the child and allowed them to continue to feel part of the foster family, as well as in many cases um, feeling quite strongly connected to their birth family. So those are very important elements. And I think our sense of the role of the birth families has been um, enhanced really by a piece of work that we had done previous to this study, which was a specific study of the parents of children in long-term foster care. Um, and from that study, it was very clear that there was a, a wide range in the quality of social work and that where you had excellent social work mm -hmm. and the birth parents felt supported, they felt they had a reasonable amount of information about how the child was doing, the contact was facilitated well, often the foster carer might be happy to speak to them at intervals so they, they weren't so cut off from the children. Mm -hmm. Actually, they were then able to support the child in the placement and the placement itself became more successful. So. I think all these different perspectives are very, very important to take into account if you're thinking about, about long-term foster care. So this is, this is a study which is one of a series, but it did reinforce the messages that we had from not just the study in which I interviewed adults who grew up in foster care, but another study called Growing Up in Foster Care, where we followed a cohort of children over a just under 10-year period through their experiences of foster care. So all the research that we've done has come up with some very, very consistent findings. Oh, wow, yeah, which really lends so much weight to it. And when you hear those three perspectives, I think I'm struck by they're all so critical to the good experience of the child and the foster family and the birth parents. So it's great to have some solid research findings to support that. Yes. I mean, if I could summarise you know, three key findings mm -hmm. that I think probably sum up really the, the whole body of research that we've been doing. I think the first is, and it is important, is that foster care can provide a family for life that secure-based parenting, including enabling a child to feel very much part of the family, is possible. So I think we need to accept that, that there are situations in which long-term foster care can work well for children, but, and there is a but, this will only occur if the placement is providing really good parental care and commitment if the placement is stable, which is likely to follow from the first, and is also supported by agencies who treat the family as a family and not as a temporary placement. Though I think it's very difficult to provide a, a family for life, to provide a sort of permanent family for a child, particularly the troubled children who they are asked to look after, children from the care system, if every message they get from professionals around them is that this is a temporary placement. So I think we are having to work very, very hard, both certainly in the UK, but I guess it's the same in, in Canada and, and the States as well, mm. to, on the one hand, hold in mind the idea and the research that adoption has excellent outcomes for children and that we should use it when it's appropriate. So this is, in a sense, my third finding. We need to be absolutely clear that we're finding the right placement for each child so that we value adoption, we value kinship care, 
but we also value long-term foster care. I think one of the other things that um, you asked me earlier about what inspired me to study in this area was the fact that I was very aware of politicians who were endlessly talking about children lingering and languishing in care. And this was back in the 90s, but I'm afraid I'm still hearing that language now. And of course, when you hear that language, you think of all the foster carers and the children to whom they are applying those terms. It's incredibly stigmatizing. It's just somehow that this is a second-rate, second-class placement. And, you know, it's, it's the very dangerous route to go down. So I think we should all be smart enough to understand that what we need to do is we need to certainly value adoption, as I know, um, I know in Canada is important, as it certainly is in the UK, mm-hmm. but also to understand that not all children in care will be adopted yeah. and that for those children who are not adopted, maybe because adoptive parents don't come forward, mm-hmm. maybe because they've got close birth family ties that means that actually adoption is not appropriate, maybe there's a large sibling group, all sorts of reasons might suggest that adoption won't happen for them. We therefore have to look very hard at how we make sure that long-term foster care offers many of the good things that adoption offers in terms of the quality of care and the sense of family membership. So I think that kind of package, I think it's quite interesting that at the moment in the UK, for the first time in all these years that I've been researching in this area, the government is now looking at producing guidance and regulations on long-term foster care. So I'm part of a group who are advising the Department for Education on ways in which we can make sure that foster carers in long-term foster placements are supported in the role that we've given them. If we place a child in a foster family who's maybe eight, nine, ten years old, and we say, we would like you to bring this child up to adulthood to provide a real family for this child, then we need to work very hard to make sure that we treat those foster carers with respect as parents, as well as professionals, and that we don't uh, make any negative assumptions that this is a a disappointing second choice, that actually Mm. we say no and work well for children. I mean, I think one of the things that's been very fortunate in uh, supporting this um, initiative really has been the research of Nina Behal and her colleagues at York. And the work that Nina has done really and her colleagues has been to follow up a cohort of children, some of whom were adopted by their foster carers, some were in long-term foster care, and some were adopted by unrelated uh, carers, Mm -hmm. adopted parents. And she demonstrated that where long-term foster care was stable, the outcomes in terms of emotional and behavioral development was comparable to children in adoption. So that has been helpful in suggesting that it's not only about the legal status, it's about stability and the quality of care. So I think that's been helpful in um, informing the debate and, and in allowing us to work on uh, guidance that I think, I think will be very, very welcomed in the field. I was reading one of your articles last night and you spoke about, it was one on risk and resilience. I can't remember the full yeah. title. Um, yeah, yeah. But I thought it was really interesting at the end, the way you said that the hopefulness that a lot of the children and young people had expressed could be well placed also in the context of, you know, the, the professionals in their lives kind of looking at, at their, their potential and their, their possibility for good outcomes. I thought I was just struck by the word hopefulness. Yes, it's, it's interesting, actually, because I think the, the literature on resilience says quite a bit about hopefulness. Yeah. Um, In a sense, I think when you're talking about planning the future of very vulnerable, often very damaged children, and that's the children we're talking about in in our care system, then we have to be ambitious for them. We have Mm. to hope that um, although we understand 
um, perhaps more than we ever have before, the mm-hmm. damage that abuse can do to children. We know it affects their emotional behavioral development. We know it can affect um, even brain uh, development mm-hmm. as well in infancy. So we understand the risks. But when we're looking at providing really good care for them, then we have to be working on the uh, premise because we know that research supports this too, that even very damaged and vulnerable children can thrive Mm -hmm. if they receive sensitive care of of a particular kind. And I suppose it's really because of my belief in that that we've, we've, we've looked also at this research, not just in relation to understanding long-term foster care as permanence, but also in trying to make connections with, with theory um, and research in developmental psychology, particularly around uh, resilience and attachment. And it's from, from that really that we've been uh, developing over the years this model, which we've called the secure base model of caregiving. And it's a model really that was based on, started off with us thinking about in the studies that we've done and when we talked to foster carers and when we observed what was happening with the young people and children, what was it that the foster carers were doing well when they were doing it well? Um, and we went back to attachment theory, the early, early part of attachment theory, the early stages of the development of attachment theory and the work of um, Mary Ainsworth, mm-hmm. who worked with John Bowlby in the early days. And her work in the 1970s when she developed something called the strange situation, which is a, a, an experimental condition which allows researchers to define whether a child is securely attached or insecurely attached. Mary Ainsworth came up with a, a number of dimensions that she found increased security in infants. So what we did was to apply those dimensions to thinking about what about children who are beyond infancy, so mm-hmm. preschool children, middle childhood children, adolescents. Mm-hmm. Could we see some of the same qualities in the caregiving um, in, in, the, in the foster carers that we were working with, although we were also um, aware that these things would also be very relevant to adoptive parents? Could we see those kinds of caregiving patterns? And as we looked at the material we had, we, we felt that this was actually going to be not just a helpful way of understanding the research, but actually something that could provide a very helpful tool for practitioners. Ah. So shall I go through the, the five dimensions? That, that would be, be brilliant, yes, thank you. Okay, so what we did was we, we took the, the, the four, there were initially four dimensions which Mary Ainsworth had identified, and these were availability, sensitivity, acceptance, and cooperation. And with each of these dimensions, we were trying to think about, well, what would be the developmental benefit of each of them? So with availability, we're thinking about the emotional, um, psychological, physical, practical availability Mm -hmm. of a caregiver, and that could be a foster carer or adopter, so I'll Mm -hmm. call them caregivers, that's helpful. The important thing about availability in a caregiver is that it helps the child to trust. So if the child is able to understand that whatever happens, whether they have something good to tell somebody or whether they're stressed and anxious, their caregiver is available psychologically and practically for them and can reassure them and help them move on to the next thing in their, in their lives. And of course, this is at the heart of, of the model, really, because it's at the heart of the concept of a secure base. But what John Bowlby said about a secure base was that what children need is to have any sort of anxieties that they may have soothed and met by calm, reassuring, warmth, love from the caregiver. And that if a child's anxiety is reduced in that way, then they are free to um, enjoy their world, to play, to learn. 
And of course, that's true for people at every stage in their lives, that we only operate well when our anxiety is managed. So we can think about that in infants, we can think about that in preschool children, right through to adolescents and adults. Mm -hmm. So the availability helps the child to trust. The next dimension is sensitivity, and that had a particular meaning. It meant that the caregivers were thoughtful, reflective, and able to think about what was going on in the mind of the child. So that's incredibly important. It's absolutely at the heart of attachment theory as well, that the idea is that if the caregiver is um, thinking about and reflecting on the mind of the child, is curious about what's going on in the mind of the child, then they're going to be better able to tune into the child and to respond sensitively to their needs mm -hmm. and communications. And the developmental benefit of that dimension is it will help the child to manage and understand and regulate their own feelings. And if you can manage your anger, your anxiety, your happiness even, without being overwhelmed by it, then that allows you to relax. It allows you to regulate not just your feelings, but also your behavior. And it also helps you in time to start to be much more sensitive and attuned to the thoughts and feelings of other people. And that process is really going on right from uh, the early years of childhood right through to adulthood. So this is very important. And it's an element that's often missing for children who've experienced mm -hmm. abuse and neglect in their childhood. They find it very difficult to allow themselves to think about their feelings. So it's a, a really important gift to a child mm -hmm. if a caregiver can help them to do that. And then the third dimension, acceptance. This is really about accepting the child for who they are and helping, therefore, build the child's self-esteem. So in this dimension, there's a key connection between acceptance and the child's self-esteem and how you enable the child to value themselves. That may be through uh, simply being loved, but it's often much more likely to be through um, activities, through mm -hmm. doing things together, through sharing things together. So the child starts to feel valued by the caregiver and starts to internalize that in terms of their own self-esteem. And then the fourth was cooperation. So this is, you see this even with mothers of, of, and fathers of, of babies, that actually uh, what's really important is that you treat the baby or child with respect, that you value the child's initiatives, the child wants to make choices and do things for themselves. We see that a lot, don't we, with toddlers, that actually what's really important is that you encourage children to do things for themselves and to feel effective. So mm -hmm. feeling effective is key to that dimension. And of course, very importantly, children who are in care who've come from backgrounds of abuse and neglect will often feel powerless or sometimes too powerful, and they don't know how to feel effective in a constructive way that will actually enable them to then be cooperative with other people. So that's an important story with those, those four dimensions. And of course, they interact. What we also did, we built into our model of the secure base, the fifth dimension of family membership that actually for all children in care, um, whether they remain in foster care, whether they go into adoption, feeling that you are a member of a family, part of a family, that you belong and have an entitlement to feel um, that this is uh, your family too, is absolutely key to a child's sense of identity mm -hmm. and therefore contributes effectively to the secure base. So this, this model works really. We, we drew these five dimensions together and we drew some arrows to show how they interacted. Um, and it came up with a, a nice sort of star shape. And we've used that star shape to teach the model to foster carers, 
and to explore it in our, in our writing and in our work and, and so forth. So what was quite encouraging for us was that in quite an early stage, uh, they took up this model in, in Norway. And so as well as in the UK, there are many practitioners in, in Norway who are using this model. So it, it's been possible to see in different cultures and contexts, really, how, how it can work, because at the heart of it all is good parenting. And of course, that's what these children need more than anything else. That's interesting that it, it transfers so well into other cultures. And it's really these are five fundamental, I suppose. Yes, I mean, I think, I think the, the point about it, I've, sometimes when I'm, I'm perhaps talking to social workers or foster carers about the model, they'll say to me afterwards, you know, it's not rocket science. <laughs> and I say, exactly, it's not rocket yeah. science. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to say a lot of these things that you may do already, but let's think about why research is helping us to see why they are so significant for troubled children. So foster carers will immediately understand the importance of being available for a child, but they might not have truly thought through why it's so important for an anxious child to know exactly where they are so that they can feel reassured and maybe if they feel reassured they know where the carer is then maybe they're going to be less anxious and therefore less mm. aggressive. So I think it's about pulling together some ideas that are quite common, they're not sort of not rocket science, uh, but nevertheless there is a, a very strong research base particularly in the attachment world and in developmental psychology but also now I think in the family placement world that supports the idea that you do need all of these interacting with each other in order to help a child uh, make the progress they need to make. I think the way you provide examples as well, it makes it really accessible and you're, you can kind of see concrete examples of how this is done and how it's worked and how it's, for each child it looks different, but for each child it can have such great, um, an, a great impact for them. Yes, I mean, I think that's, that, and that's a very important message as well. So for a foster carer, um, actually being available for one child might require a different kind of behavior or activity, mm-hmm. you know, so that for one child, they want to be scooped up and given a big hug, and that's an availability that the, the child will love and enjoy. For another child who's more cautious, actually, they prefer you to sit close to them and talk mm-hmm. gently, and that would also be giving that message, I'm available, mm-hmm. but in a way that appropriate to that child and and that's a good example really of the interaction of the dimension so you have to be sensitive to that individual child in order to then be available and of course the availability then contributes to the child's sense of being accepted and and so on really so it's it's the whole package I think that's really important I think it also is part of what you mentioned before about the importance of of hopefulness and in in not just in the child but in the carers and and the social workers I think sometimes if a placement is stable, people leave well alone. So if there isn't a problem, then, you know, that's fine. Whereas I think what we ought to be doing is saying, well, okay, so there isn't a problem, but let's just see if we look at these different dimensions, how well is this child able to trust? Are they trusting appropriately? Are they trusting too many people, perhaps? Are they indiscriminately trusting people? Uh, Let's look at ways in which we could improve that. Let's look at ways in which we could allow the child to feel, actually, no, it is okay to go off to a new activity, knowing that your carer will pick you up afterwards and Mm. will be confident that that's so. I think sometimes with children who've got very difficult backgrounds, children in care in particular, I think sometimes people say, well, well, their behavior is very difficult, but you'd expect that given that difficult history. So I think we need to say, yes, that's true. But that doesn't mean that we don't try to challenge it. We don't try to be to try and achieve for children the best they can possibly achieve, that we, we don't say to ourselves, now we know so much about the damage, long-term damage of abuse, 
that really there's, there's nothing much we can do when they get to the age of 15. Actually, I've got lots of examples both from, from all our studies, um, but particularly, I guess, from the study of, of adults who grew up in foster care, of children who actually found their first truly loving family when they were 15 or 16 years old. And now as you know, 28, 30-year-olds and parents themselves, that family that they didn't meet till they were 15 or 16 is still their family, is still the family that has allowed them to be perhaps to give up drugs or to, to mm. actually completely find education and so forth. So I'm really, really keen. Sometimes with attachment theory, people think it's only about babies. Yeah. And that really, by the time you get to teenage years, why are we still talking about forming new attachments? But I think all the evidence we have suggests that in the teenage years, children are perfectly able to form attachments, as we are in adult life, of course, when we meet our, meet our partners, we expect to form attachments. So quite why we think this is something that only babies do, I think is a bit of a, a strange thing, really. I think people often misread Bowlby's yeah. attachment theory when they focus only on babies. So the whole of child placement, I think, is premised on the idea um, and research supports it, that children can form new secure attachments that last at any stage through childhood. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we hang on to that notion that even in the late teenage years, children, teenagers could still find a relationship that would help them into adulthood. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any key messages that you would think that uh, would be beneficial for child welfare practitioners to, to have? I think I think two things, really. I, mm -hmm. I do think there is there's no substitute for really having a good understanding of child development. So I think we do need to understand, uh, not just from lists of developmental norms, but just at a, at a deeper level, really, the effect of abuse and neglect on child development so that when we're working with children of all ages, that we are both conscious of the risks, but also conscious of strength so that we mm -hmm. continue to look for something that we can build on. So I think I think knowledge of child development is very important. Yeah. Um, and then the other side of that coin clearly is understanding what kinds of caregiving are most likely to help particular children. How can children be helped to manage their behavior, to form better relationships, to achieve better at school because they're more settled and relaxed mm -hmm. and so forth. I think I'm, I'm a very keen that child welfare practitioners are very knowledgeable about the psychology of child development and, and parenting, really. And also, I think we just need to be very conscious of the importance, I guess, in terms of the permanence agenda of family membership, that as well as the sensitive caregiving and attachment issues, that how children manage what are often multiple family memberships birth families, foster families, perhaps if you're in adoption, a previous foster family. We need to help children to manage those, manage their contact and so forth. So there is that fifth dimension, mm -hmm. which I think, without which I think you won't succeed. But unless you help children manage their feelings about their birth family, they're not going to trust you and feel accepted. Mm -hmm. so, so I think this family membership is, is very important too. You've been listening to Research Radio, Episode 7, a conversation with Professor Gillian Schofield. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about this episode's topic, Research Radio, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.parkcanada.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Part EIP. That's P A R T E I P.
Thanks for listening.